morning, Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Douglas Impoga in Washington. Today is Thursday, August 4th. And here are some of the stories we are covering. Kenyans are bombarded with campaign ads and politician speeches in the run-up to the presidential election on Tuesday. Our country places high premium in creating the right atmosphere that supports investment and growth to boost our economy and continue to play an important role in sustaining global energy requirements. Nigeria's President Muhammad Buhari unveils a revamped national oil company that he calls commercially driven and not relying on government funding. The team that we're sending out are our members. They are not employed by government ministry, so they don't belong to any ministry, they don't. And Malawi Nurses Union urges President Lazarus Chakwera to allow about 2,000 nurses to work in the United States and Saudi Arabia after the government ordered the plan to be stopped. Those and more coming up on Daybreak Africa. are being bombarded with campaign ads and politician speeches in the run-up to the presidential election on Tuesday. The rich son of the country's founding leader, President Uhuru Kenyatta, has thrown his support to longtime rival Raila Odinga, who is leading in the latest opinion polls by six percentage points over his closest competitor, Deputy President William Ruto. Kenyatta has deflected allegations of graft by calling for transparency but has done little in 10 years in office to usher in a change. VOA Africa 54 managing editor Wizen Makori tells reporter Carol Van Dam that corruption is a big issue for Kenyans, adding some young people say they are not even planning to vote. One of the things they mention is that they feel like the politicians are self-serving they are not only poor in terms of money out there, but once they get in, they re- try to recoup those monies. They try to help themselves to get even wealthier. So there is a lot of disenchantment, especially among the youth. You're saying people are so disgusted that they're not even going to go and vote, a lot of people? I mean, I wouldn't say a lot of people, but I'm saying there is a section of the Kenyan population that says it doesn't see the value of even participating in the election because uh, their conditions their state of uh, livelihoods never seems to change even after an election. But of course, the politicians have been all over the country doing as much as they can uh, to call people to come out and vote in huge numbers. Talking about these two main candidates, how do their campaign platform speeches differ? You know, when I listen to both sides and actually, you know, we've been talking a lot about uh, Raila Odinga and William Ruto, but we have to face it, there are two other presidential candidates. Uh, there's uh, Professor George Wajakoya and there is a uh, Maura, uh, presidential candidate, Maure. When you listen to all the candidates, really, they're all talking about the same things, except for uh, Professor George Wajakoya. Now, if I take the other three, uh, Raila Odinga, Ruto, and Maure, they're all talking about improving uh, access to healthcare, improving education, improving the economy, ensuring that there's security in the country and, of course, the state of food. Now, it's, all, it's, a, it's a question of how they package this. It's about uh, how they convince, they're trying to convince people how they are better placed to actually fulfill those aspirations of the people. The only difference 
which looks a little bit odd to most Kenyans. The candidate called George Wajakoya is a, is a kind of a ideas are sounding more eccentric to most uh, to some Kenyans. Uh, for example, he has uh, vowed to legalize the, mar- the sale of marijuana. He thinks Kenya can make tons of money. You're in Nairobi, of course, but when you travel or when your you know, colleagues travel outside Nairobi, the capital, what are they seeing and what are people saying there? Do they have a, a different uh, candidate that they like better in other places around the country, you know, based on what they're hearing from them and just what they know about the candidates? Actually, you know, the Kenyan candidates really canvass the country and, and uh, generally sell themselves to the people. They travel to the people. So the, 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 the most, uh, I can say, that you can say is of a difference. The, 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 the greater difference is uh, how the people in the urban areas kind of uh, uh, react to some of the things they hear as opposed to people in the, uh, in, in, in the countryside. The people in the countryside tend to kind of uh, to be more uh, inclined to support a candidate who is either from their area, either from their area, or sometimes whoever is able to really tell them how he will solve some of their problems. Now, Kenyans in the countryside have diff- different kind of issues. Those who live in the arid areas, they want to hear how you will uh, bring water to their area, how you will help them. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you think is important to point out about this uh, upcoming election and what you're seeing there? One of the things that people are concerned about is the aftermath, the post-election. Uh, they're concerned that there could be some level of uh, violence, not necessarily extreme, but uh, especially because of some of the utterances from uh, the candidates, some of the candidates, but also social media. Kind of uh, information going out there creates a discomfort among many Kenyans uh, that there could be a situation, but they don't know exactly where and how. That was VOA's Africa 54 Managing Editor, Vincent Makori. He was speaking from Nairobi with my colleague, Carl Van Damme. Nigeria's President Mohamed Buhari has unveiled a revamped national oil company that he calls commercially driven and not relying on government funding. Buhari says the Nigerian National Petroleum Company would improve energy security amid shortages and high prices. But energy experts in Nigeria, Africa's largest oil producer, question if needed reforms will accompany the rebranding. Timothy Biezu reports from Abuja, Nigeria. The transition of the Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation, NNPC, into a limited liability company took place Tuesday at a high-level state event in Abuja. During the meeting, President Mohamed Buhari and other top government officials unveiled the new company's logo and said its asset base will be declared soon. Buhari said it's a landmark moment for Nigeria's oil industry and that it would guarantee energy security in the country. The president also said the new oil company will operate independently without relying on government funding and rules. Buhari says it will position Nigeria to earn bigger income from oil and address local energy needs. Our country places high premium in creating the right atmosphere that supports investment and growth to boost our economy and continue to play an important role in sustaining global energy requirements. 
We are transforming our petroleum industry to strengthen its capacity and market relevance for the present and future global energy priorities. The transition was triggered by Buhari's signing of a petroleum industry bill into law last August. Nigeria is Africa's biggest oil producer and also has huge natural gas reserves. But the country lacks refineries and a reliable electrical grid, leaving millions to grapple with regular power cuts, fuel scarcity, and high energy prices. Some experts like Emmanuel Afimia, founder of Abuja Energy Consulting Company, Enemix Consulting Limited, say oil company leaders need to move past business as usual. One of the problems that we've always had in Nigeria is the problem of implementation. If um, NMPC can actually do the right thing, if um, the regulatory authorities can also do the right thing, then I believe that NMPC will be able to achieve its um, objectives of uh, maximizing the opportunities and maximizing outputs and also maximizing the profit in the industry. Afemia says if properly run, the company will attract more investment. With these funding issues with the result, because NMPs can simply go into its pause, bring out funds for funding new oil and gas projects, without having to wait for um, the president or the House of Assembly to um, approve anything. So it would uh, ensure that the company is able to move fast and then investors would be confident enough to invest in NMPC. Authorities say the company could be ready to list its shares on the stock exchange by the middle of next year. Many will be watching to see how and if the rebranding changes the status quo. Timothy Obizu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. Malawi's nurses union is urging President Lazarus Chakwera to allow about 2,000 nurses to work in the United States and Saudi Arabia after the government ordered the plan be stopped. The National Organization of Nurses and Midwives of Malawi announced the plan a month ago, saying the nurses were forced to take jobs abroad due to high unemployment in Malawi. The healthcare brain drain raised concerns and the Minister of Labor ordered the plan cancelled, saying the union has no legal mandate on labor migration. Lameka Masina reports from Blantyre, Malawi. Malawi's Minister of Labor, Vera Kantukule, told VOA Tuesday that the decision to suspend the plans were made after considering that the National Organization of Nurses and Midwives of Malawi is just a union of medical workers. What we told them was, was if you want to be doing this thing, then probably you may have to register a separate entity that is going to be doing recruitment. But you, the way you are, your mandate does not allow you to engage yourself in the migration. Kantukule said there's also need for a memorandum of understanding between the countries where the nurses are going to work and the Malawi government before the nurses organization can proceed with its plans. The memorandum of understanding would deal with how Malawian nurses would be taken care of in these countries. The Labour Minister says Malawi is among the countries where the World Health Organization has put restrictions on medical workers' migration. The last time we had had uh, an inquiry from Scotland, I think one of the hospitals in Scotland that had wanted also to do this, the Scottish government got um, that response from the WHO and said uh, Malawi is on the list of those countries from which you cannot take the health personnel. Shouts Smith as the president of the nurses' organization in Malawi.
He says he's surprised with the minister's position on the matter. The minister cannot cancel this thing. The minister has no mandate altogether to tell us uh, that we don't have the mandate. That, that's being rude, in fact. And it is government that identified us as norms to facilitate this. And government has also said that it, it is not the only entity to recruit. And that is why the head of state, Dr. Chakwera, says job creation campaign. And that's exactly what we are doing. Smeza says the decision to seek jobs for nurses abroad came because 3,000 trained nurses in Malawi are unemployed. Smeza said the area arrangement was that the first group of 1,000 nurses were expected to leave for Saudi Arabia this month. The plan is to send 1,000 each year for a five-year project. But he said there was a delay because they were waiting for guidelines from various ministries, including the Minister of Health, Minister of Foreign Affairs, and the Minister of Labor, on how to move forward. The team that we're sending out are our members. They are not employed by government ministry. So they don't belong to any ministry. They don't. So we went seeking guidance from the Ministry of Labor on the safety and security of the membership that is going to U.S. The Malawi government said recently that it cannot recruit more nurses now because of financial constraints. In a statement Tuesday, a group of Malawi's nurses and midwives urged President Chakwera to intervene on the matter and stop the Minister of Labor from halting the plan to send some of them abroad to work. There was no immediate response from President Chakwera on the matter. Lamek Masina for VOA News. Blanta, Malawi. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm Douglas Impoga in Washington. Today is Thursday, August 4th. African wildlife officials meeting in Rwanda last month for the first ever African Protected Areas Congress noted that the first spreading urbanization threatens the continent's biodiversity. In a bid to promote nature conservation, Rwanda has restored a degraded wetland in the capital as its first urban ecotourism and education park. Senamu Todd reports from Kigali. The Nyandungu Eco Park is Rwanda's first urban park located in the capital city of Kigali. It is a 121-hectare property made up of a wetland and a forest. According to the CEO of Rwanda Green Fund, Teddy Mogabo in Panganzima, the park will help promote conservation among urban communities and educate children about protecting nature. Its role is to play as an ecotourism park, but there's also a recreational and educational aspect to it. So within the park, we have a medicinal, uh, medicinal garden uh, whereby we've actually planted um, you know, indigenous uh, tree species and the idea for, uh, for this is to really ensure that we are also regenerating you know, indigenous tree species. And so through this, we organize tours and uh, we'll be organizing tours with um, you know, schools. The park opened to the public in July after a six-year process to restore it from a degraded wetland. Officials say structures were built on the delicate land and it was used for livestock and agriculture, damaging it. To salvage the area, Mpinganzima says they worked with residents some whose livelihoods depended on the area to develop a model that supports urbanization and conservation. 
So what we did when we were developing the park, we made sure that um, the jobs that we created and the people that we gave the jobs to during the, the, you know, the works that were going on were actually those same local communities. So in the end, the park is really not uh, a product of the Ministry of Environment or the Rana Green Fund or, you know, it's, 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 it's something that everybody has worked on. This model, says Luther Anuka, the regional director of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, is a sustainable way to develop African cities while preserving Africa's biodiversity. Africa is fast developing and the, 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 the tension is there between development and conservation. For example, lots of infrastructure development. But actually we're trying to say here that that needs to be resolved. It doesn't have to be development or conservation. We are saying development for conservation, conservation for development. To achieve this, officials say there must be a review of how much financing governments in Africa are providing for conservation and development projects. We need to move away from the old paradigm where protected areas or um, basically diversity conservation was basically um, um, looking at only one source of financing. And this source of financing was mainly grants from um, um, uh, overseas development assistance. But we're trying to say that there needs to be, first of all, governments themselves allocating more resources towards protected areas because these are strong, I mean, they provide value to the economy. Rwandan authorities say the model that blends public and private funding works well and they will continue to use it to restore other conservation sites. Sena Anutod for VOA News, Chigali, Rwanda. In Kenya, political analyst says the reintroduction of mandatory mask wearing in all indoor meetings will affect ongoing political campaigns in the run-up to the upcoming general election. Anthony James Muamu is a former president of the Lost Society of Kenya. He says it appears the Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission may have come up with the measures to assure voters of their protection against the disease during the election process. His remarks come after the health minister announced the reintroduction of mandatory face masks in all indoor meetings. The measure, officials say, aims to curb the recent spike in COVID-19 cases in parts of the country. For more on how the new measure will impact the ongoing campaign season, viewers Peter Clote reached attorney James Mwamu in the Kenyan capital Nairobi. For us, because of the election season, uh, not very many people are uh, quickly getting um, uh, accepting to go back to the issue of wearing masks and keeping distance. So it's it's something that is slowly coming in. Maybe next week the government may want to put in more strict strict uh, restrictions uh, to that is hotels, bars, supermarkets, public vehicles, public means of transport, offices, and things like that. Do you anticipate this latest reintroduction of the mask-wearing mandate to affect campaigns in the run-up to the election? It is definitely going to affect the campaign because I think when the Ministry of uh, Health issues such orders, that therefore means that uh, the large gathering of groups are going to be restricted and it is going to affect the massive turnout in campaigns. The... Politicians themselves may not restrict people going to those uh, meetings, but I think uh, quite a number of people who basically fear for their health stay away from uh, those meetings. The other thing that, again, of course, is likely to happen during this particular time 
you know, many restaurants, food stores, and bars are just recovering from the long period of pandemic closure during to the pandemic. It therefore means that uh, a number of them will be very unwilling to just go back uh, to what it used to be. So in, in, in a nutshell, yes, it is going to affect uh, the campaigns, the town hall meetings, the open air spaces, the rallies, and the huge gatherings. What about the candidates themselves, not only the presidential candidates, but other aspiring candidates for governors, uh, senators, parliamentarians, and all those who have pre-existing conditions? Wouldn't this recent spike also affect how they interact with the public or the prospective voters to canvass for votes for them? Yes, it is going to affect them. In fact, I think now they will have to devise methods of reaching uh, voters. Uh, like now you have many other people now have adopted the method of using social media, Facebook, or just calling, you know, call, robocalls, you know. Uh, I think those are the methods they're going to use because I doubt whether people with pre-existing conditions who are the candidates will want to expose themselves to danger. What about the election day itself and, and how this could possibly affect whether people would want to go and vote or not? You know, during um, the elections in Uganda, equivalent of IPC of Uganda devised methods, maybe our independent electoral boundaries commission Will, will now see what can be done, whether there will be a creation of uh, mobile election uh, places. But those, of course, have to be, have to be covered by the law. The only, <laughs> the only bottleneck is that now parliament, both parliament, all two houses of parliament have now been dissolved and they have gone home so that there may be difficulties in coming up with the new laws. That was Attorney James Mwamu, a former president of the Lost Sat of Kenya, speaking with my colleague Peter Klote. The government in Zimbabwe has been pushing for the city council of the capital Harare to own a deal with a private contractor. The deal gives the contractor mandate to occupy the city's dump site to manage and recycle waste and generate electricity. The council says the 30-year agreement, which is worth over $240 million, is unfair. From Harare, reporter Kuzai Vinavashi has more details. Ruben Akili is the programs officer with the Combined Harare Residents Association. He explains the agreement known as the Pomona deal, named after the said dump site. This deal saw the city of Harare giving up its dump site to Georgenix, and then in turn, the city of Harare started to pay $40 a ton to dump waste at the at the same dump site. The city of Harare is supposed to dump a waste which is uh, not uh, below 500.5 tons. The councillors and the mayor have put up a strong front resisting the deal and launched an investigation into it. Their efforts have been complemented by non-profit organizations, residents, and associations like the one Akili works for. It's not sustainable in the sense that the payment model see the local authority giving up its dump site and then starts to pay uh, dumping waste at its own dump site, paying about 22000 per day. And the local authority doesn't have such, such amount of money. It's also beneficial to the so-called investor rather than to the local authority. If is such an unsustainable deal will sink the council into more debt. 
the resistance by the council to service the contract and an attempt to suspend it has been met by resistance from the Ministry of Local Government. It has sent strongly worded letters instructing the council to honor the terms and conditions of the deal. Jacob Mafume is the mayor of Harare. He summarizes the key points of the council resolutions at the end of a recent special council meeting to discuss the deal. And that's it for this Thursday, August 4th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for joining us this morning. On behalf of the entire Daybreak Africa crew, I'm Douglas in in Washington, wishing you a very good day. Sports fans, brighten your day by tuning into the sunny side of sports Monday through Friday at 1630 and 1830 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports. Or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash sunny. It's the sunny side of sports right here on the 